I've just turned on to Sunset Boulevard here in the heart of Hollywood. I'm not that far from Vanity Fair's LA offices. This is really the birthplace of the modern entertainment industry. And it's seen a lot of change, a lot of up and down over the last century. The most recent revitalization of Hollywood came a few years ago, kind of at the peak of Netflix's ascendance as a streaming behemoth. They built these shiny new office towers right here in Hollywood. And now it's where the majority of their entertainment focused executives work. As I drive along, it's hard not to think about how things are changing again here in Hollywood. The streaming boom that has ruled the last decade or so is sort of coming to an end and there's a lot of anxiety and, and fear about what is next for the people who make their livelihoods in Hollywood. Uh, that's something we're going to talk a lot about today. You're listening to a special bonus episode of Inside the Hive. I'm Vanity Fair senior media correspondent Joe Pompeo. I'm joined by my colleague, Natalie Jarvie. Hello, Natalie. Thanks for having me, Joe. And you want to tell us what you do here at Vanity Fair? Yeah, of course. I'm the Hollywood correspondent, and I focus primarily on the business of entertainment. And that's good because Hollywood is our topic today. It has a big conundrum on its hands. The streaming giants, Netflix, Hulu, Disney+, Plus, the list goes on, are in an existential struggle for money and market share. But the surge of programming we've come to know as peak TV might be over thanks to unsustainable growth models. Natalie and I are going to break all this down for you. I want to set the table here for a second. So for years, you know, we've been watching the peak TV bubble get bigger and bigger. So many shows being produced across the various streamers. They're spending more and more money, like these astronomical deals that Netflix cut with, with Shonda Rhimes and Ryan Murphy and the Obamas and Harry and Meghan. There's more, more and more competition for IP. And it seems like there's been this looming sense that this just wasn't sustainable. So now here we are, we're coming out of the first quarter of 2023. We still have breakout hits and there's lots of great stuff to watch. But at the same time, you know, last year, everyone got pretty spooked after Netflix had that stunning subscriber stumble and, and these companies have lost a lot of stock value. You know, budgets are being reined in, there are recession jitters in the air. Can you, can you sort of break down where things are at right now with the streaming wars in Hollywood? And I guess, you know, is it time to say that, that the party's over? I'd say we're at, it's like 1 a.m. and people are starting to go home. <laughs> There's still those few people who are hanging on, hoping that, you know, the folks will have a, a second life, a, another wind, and, and, and keep partying. Uh, so, you know, it's it's definitely getting pretty dire. Um, and, you know, I'm happy to talk to you about, like, some of these specific companies and, and what they're doing. Because, uh, you know, it, I think when you look at some of the cuts these companies are having to make, it gets pretty pretty clear. Well, you read my mind because we're taping this uh, sort of in the midst of, of earnings season. Um, in the past couple of weeks, we've gotten the latest quarterly financial results for Netflix, Disney, Warner Brothers Discovery. Can you give us kind of like big picture rundown of how things are going for these companies? What, what stuck out to you, um, you, you know, as you've been kind of covering uh, earnings in the past few weeks? Yeah. So I want to start with Disney because I think that they're in a particularly precarious place. 
Good afternoon. It's my pleasure to welcome everybody to the Walt Disney Company's first quarter 2023 earnings call. Joining me for today's call are Bob Iger, Disney's Chief Executive Officer, and Christine McCarthy, um, they've had a CEO changeover. Bob Iger, who retired as CEO in 2020, is back again after his successor. Who would Rob have thought? I mean, stunning. Right? <laughs> I mean, I think we all should have predicted it. Uh, Bob was not eager to leave that job in the first place, and you know, his successor, Bob Chapek, made some really terrible stumbles uh, and uh, was not well liked uh, by the end of his tenure. So Bob Iger is back in the hot seat and. Things were not good for Disney, and 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 he knew he needed to come in with a pretty strong plan. First off, Disney Plus actually lost subscribers uh, during uh, the last three months of the year. It's the first time that that's happened for them. And the company lost over a billion dollars uh, on streaming. So, you know, it, these numbers are not great. Uh, Wall Street is going to be looking for, uh, you know, a plan to course correct. And so he delivered that. We are targeting $5.5 billion of cost savings across the company. To help achieve this, we will be reducing our workforce by approximately 7,000 jobs. While this is necessary to address the challenges we're facing today, I do not make this decision lightly. 7,000 jobs. Grim yeah, stuff. it's a lot of people, a lot of people across the company. And, um, you know, I think we can expect to see them do a lot of different things. They're going to pull back on how much they spend on content. Uh, they're going to, you know, I think be a little bit more picky about what they make and and what kinds of shows they they put on Disney Plus and Hulu and, and you know, their streaming services. Uh, and, you know, they'll probably be more cost conscious about what they're going to make as well. Uh, so, you know they're uh, they're not in a good spot, uh, but you know Bob Iger's got a plan, and and he tends to um, he he has a way of talking to Wall Street that tends to calm fears. So we'll see how his plan uh, works. Mm-hmm. Um, Warner Brothers Discovery. Did you listen into their 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 call as well? Last year was a year of restructuring. Two thousand twenty three will be a year of building, and off we go. I did listen to their call, and I was pretty interested to see what happened with them um, because, you know, they're still kind of in the early phases of this merger of these two gigantic companies, right? Warner Media, which owns Warner Brothers and Discovery. Um, And, you know, I think that that CEO David Zaslav has a little bit of an easier time because he can basically say that all the challenges were just, you know, kind of – bumps in the road during their merger. Um, but I'm curious what you think about that and and how things are going for him because I uh, devoured your really great profile of David Zaslav a couple years ago right after he announced this merger. I think when I met with him, it was uh, summer 2021. Um, you know, the deal had been announced, but the, the companies hadn't merged yet. So he was kind of like this guy who had just been, you know, handed the keys to the kingdom, and he was the very successful CEO of of um, uh, Discovery. But you know what? What he was previously lording over was this kind of collection of this more kind of like middle market reality programming. You know, not not the type of like prestige shows that you have on HBO and the Warner Brothers Library. So he's now going to be the steward of all that stuff, and he was just so like excited about it. And I remember some of the things that he was he was talking about, like looking ahead to you know, building this new company. And it was all about, you know, this is the best collection of, of brands and global content out there where it puts us in the, in the top tier. And 
Um, and he said to me, like, you know, that the mission of this company is going to be to spend more money on content. And he was talking about how they have the resources to do that. And I think, you know, looking at the past year of Warner Brothers Discovery, that doesn't feel like that's been the story, right? It feels like it's more been about wow. kind of managing this enormous debt load they've been saddled with and then contending with these with these changes in the marketplace that have, that have come along, you know, and I think they reported last Thursday or something last last week. So it's very fresh. And they didn't they came in below expectations. So Wall Street wasn't so into that. But at the same time, I feel like there's this sense of, well, they're doing what they set out to what they said they're going to do by paying down this enormous debt load. They lifted off with a year ago and and they're positioning themselves for the future. They're positioning themselves for growth. I can't help but think that he he really is kind of the perfect, um, you know, character for this moment that we're in, you know, the talking about, you know, if if the party's over, you know, things mm-hmm. have certainly uh, become a bit more dire for David Zaslav. Uh, and I do think that the sentiment around him has shifted quite a bit in the last year because of some of these choices that he's had to make. One of the first big moves that David Zaslav made was uh, to scrap a pretty high-profile DC movie called Batgirl that people were pretty excited about. Uh, And that happened right around the same time that uh, Warner Brothers Discovery also started to pull a lot of programming from HBO Max. And, uh, you know, these were old um, movies that had come out a couple years ago, TV shows that had already finished their run. The super um, high-profile show that they got rid of was Westworld, uh, you know, a show that was was on the air on HBO not that long ago and was supposed to have another season. That Then it got canceled before it could make that other season. But But you have to remember that, you know, I think we've all gotten really used to in the last, you know, five years or so that streaming is just going to be this, like, never-ending catalog of all the shows that have ever aired, all the content you could ever watch. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of uh, consumers, a lot of subscribers to HBO Max were really frustrated that, you know, all of a sudden the stuff that they thought they were paying for in their, you know, $15 a month uh, membership fee, you know, that this stuff was getting taken away from them. Inside the Hive, we'll be back in just a moment. Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. So this is this is kind of where we're we're going with this conversation because it's it's kind of getting more confusing to to know where to go to watch the shows you want to watch and I love you know you wrote this piece that kind of hit on this a few weeks ago the title was why has streaming become so complicated which I think sums up how a lot of us feel these days and and it just feels like streaming was supposed to make watching TV easier and I think it did do that at first or, or for a while but now it's kind of making it hard right? Am I, is that a good, am I, am I, I think it's very hard right now. It's uh, it's true. The, the grand promise of streaming, uh, was, was really, uh, as an alternative to how cumbersome and, and awful cable had become, you know, think about those, um, really restrictive contracts you would have to get into with your cable provider, you know, for, you know, a year, sometimes longer, they were really expensive. And then you'd get your cable and, uh, you know, we have, uh, 
hundreds of channels. Uh, and, uh, you know, there there wouldn't always be things that you wanted to watch or there'd be channels you didn't want to watch. I mean, even um, as far back as, um, you know, when Bruce Springsteen was singing about 57 channels and nothing on, you know, people have been complaining about uh, the fact that it just, uh, cable didn't always give you the things that you wanted. You know, Netflix uh, and Hulu, the kind of, you know, first big streaming services, those were started by very tech product minded guys, and they were all about making the viewing experience easier for people. So uh, they wanted to remove all the friction. And and so that's why you have the binge release of TV shows, right? Is because the the guys at Netflix said, well, you know, it's annoying to have to wait every week for a new episode of your favorite show. Why not just give everyone all of that show at once and they can decide how to watch it. Why should we decide how you should watch it? You can make that choice for yourself. Uh, but as these uh, more legacy entertainment companies have gotten into streaming, I think that they're still coming at the idea of streaming from this very old school mindset where they're all about protecting their content. They're all about protecting, you know, the experience of going to a movie theater or sitting sitting down on a Sunday night to watch your favorite show. And so they're making it really, really hard. As a consumer, that, that confuses me about yeah. where I'm supposed to subscribe to get the things I want to watch. And, um, you know, there's so many examples of that. I mean, I feel like I mean, I know this is my job, so I probably know it better than most, but I feel like I've had to become an expert at what company owns what Oh, property. no, totally, totally. Okay, so, so, here, so for example, say like I've never watched, say, Yellowstone, right? Since I have you here, tell me how would I watch Yellowstone if I wanted to just start binging this, this show and, and get into it? This is my favorite game, so let me see how I can deal with this. Um, so Yellowstone is a show that's owned by the company Paramount Global, which is formerly Viacom CBS, and it airs weekly on the Paramount Network. Uh, you would think, right, that Paramount Network would have streaming shows on Paramount Plus, the service that these this company, Paramount Global, right. owns. Right, that would make sense. That would make sense, but that it's not that easy. Uh, so uh, the company has actually licensed Yellowstone to Peacock, which is NBC Universal's streaming service. So you can watch the first four seasons of Yellowstone on Peacock right now. But if you wanted to stream the fifth season, you can't do that yet. It's basically nowhere to be found on streaming. You have to wait and you know a couple months after the season ends, then Peacock will get the show for streaming. So basically you have to have a Paramount Network subscription. It's a basic cable channel, so you could get it as part of a cable package if you're still signed up for cable. Uh, but if you want to watch all the Yellowstone spinoffs and prequels and things, uh, shows like 1923, which stars Harrison Ford and Helen Mirren, um, that's on Paramount+. Plus. So you basically, if you're a Yellowstone fan, you have to both have a cable subscription, probably a Peacock subscription, and a Paramount Plus subscription to be able to uh, get all of the uh, different uh, Yellowstone content. To have a hit show and have to subscribe, you know, to potentially three different services and maybe, you know, also linear TV, that seems pretty, um, it seems rather cumbersome. I had a little Paramount Plus run in recently. I should say, I, we, we, we don't subscribe. A few weeks ago, my wife wanted to watch the, the Grammys. So anyway, she goes through this, this whole rigmarole of like, again, figuring out like what channel are the Grammys on? How, what service is that attached to? She goes through the whole thing of like, 
you know, entering the credit card information, subscribing and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, the passwords and syncing it from your phone to the TV. It's, we were up and running with, with uh, Paramount+. Plus. Uh, she doesn't realize, of course, you know, to watch live TV, there's this other tier you have to upgrade to. And at that point, it was just, I mean, she was so furious and just like, immediately like rage canceled <laughs> Paramount Plus. Oh, no. So they got like four ninety nine out of us. But I think, you know, it's just it is it's 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 hard, you know, for uh, I think for for consumers. Um there's still these kind of recession jitters in, in the air. You know, people are becoming more mindful of, of what they're subscribing to. So I think people are making very um pointed decisions about what's worth paying for. It's really um becoming difficult to navigate this this world, I think, for people who just want to watch good TV. I don't know if you're a password share, Joe, but that, that's been the latest um, kerfuffle. You know, Netflix uh, for a long time was really cool about password sharing. They actually encouraged it. Again, it was all part of this, you know, uh, whole ethos that they had that was, you know, we want to make it easier for people to watch our content, not harder. Uh, but, you know, as their business has gotten more mature and and as it's gotten harder for them to add new subscribers, they're going to start cracking down on password sharing. And, you know, uh, I've had so many people in my life, you know, say to me, like, oh, I don't even know how much longer I'm going to be able to watch that because Netflix is going to pa- – crack down on password sharing and I'm going to have to figure out if I need to, you know, sign up for my own account. Um, well, so. no, I'm, I'm navigating this with, with my, you know, 70 something parents who are, you know, not the most savvy about all this, all this stuff. And they use, you know, I am a password share. I'll confess that. Sorry, um, <laughs> Reed Hastings. People who um, have been, you know, cribbing their friends' HBO password. And that just seems like that's going to become less and less of a thing because, again, you know, uh, these companies need to to make money and we're, and we're in this more kind of... Um, cautious era of spending. So, uh, you know, th- those days are over. So uh, to bring it back, can you can kind of walk us through like how we got to the point we're at now. It all goes back to Netflix, right? In some way where uh, they uh, really kind of unleashed this uh, streaming boom that we've seen for about the last, you know, 10 years or so. Netflix had so much success with that that then they decided to start making their own original programming and very famously spent a lot of money to uh, release House of Cards, which, right. you know, was kind of their first big uh That was sort of a, in... to the tipping point uh, for, exactly. for yeah, kind of like I mean, binge streaming, binge watching or whatever you'd call it. It was a huge hit. And and so suddenly all these other companies in Hollywood were like, wait a second. Um, if Netflix can do this, you know, these these tech guys who are based out of Silicon Valley, like, we can do this too. And so you had all these companies, you know, they all decided they needed streaming services too. And so they invested billions of dollars to create these services from scratch. They spent, you know, billions of dollars on programming, you know. Disney Plus, their first big show was The Mandalorian, which is coming back for season three really soon. Um, You know, uh, HBO Max has had a number of originals, but also really rested on the laurels of the HBO programming. And um, each company kind of did things in their own way, but but the the net net was basically that we suddenly had this like kind of golden age of TV where, I mean, it's kind of created this moment where it, you can just 
any kind of show out there that you might be interested in is it's there's probably something out there for you, you know, and, and right. probably many shows for you. Um, in fact, like it's it's wild. Uh, there's um there's a company FX um that tracks the number of of scripted TV shows that are released every year, and um the the chairman John Landgraf uh, just recently disclosed that there were almost 600 uh, original scripted TV shows in um, 2022. And he is the That's, man who coined the term peak TV. We should say right, like in, in 2015 or, or something like that he did yeah yeah he's he's the unofficial mayor of television it's what people like to call him because he he likes to um you know talk about these trends and um yeah coined the term peak tv which is this moment that we've been in for the last couple of years where like it it's just been every year i think like there's no way we can make more shows <laughs> there's well, we're no kind way of at that point more. now right i think we're going to start going down the other side of the hill now right Yes, I think we're finally at that point. So, you know, it, it, if you need a sign that the party's over, that that might be it. They're all trying to f- kind of figure out that balance of how many shows is the right number of shows to release on a streaming service to keep people coming back week after week and not doing the thing we were talking about, which is, you know, you watch a show and then you immediately unsubscribe. Right. Um, sure. That's what we call it. They call it quote unquote churn is the, is the churn. industry jargon. For, exactly. For, for yeah. That. Subscriber churn. So, um, you know, they're all all trying to figure out, well, what's the least amount that I can spend to make new shows that, you know, doesn't cause, you know, huge amounts of subscriber churn. Well, we're also kind of seeing signs of like the, the streaming kind of be, the streaming companies want it to be a little bit more like traditional TV, right? It's kind of like what's what's new is old again. What are some examples of that? Yeah, I mean, I think the best example is probably these um, quote-unquote fast services that have started to launch where, you know, it's this free ad-supported streaming, um, which is basically what, like, you know, broadcast TV used to be, um, except not streaming. Netflix launched ads uh, last year, and, you know— Another thing that was like you never thought you'd, you'd see, right? That was it. It was like when pigs fly. You know, I think now that Netflix has so much competition, they have to introduce a lower priced plan for people who don't want to spend, you know, ten, fifteen bucks a month for Netflix. And um, you know, it, it gives it gives people more choice, and that's good for Netflix right now while they're trying to add more subscribers. So um, now you can see ads on Netflix, and you know. Now that they're doing that, you know, all the other things they used to say they would never do suddenly start to seem more possible. Mm-hmm. Uh, so live TV is another great example of that. Um, they have historically kind of, you know, poo-pooed the idea because it's just doesn't really compute with streaming, which is supposed to be on demand at all times. Um, but uh, Netflix is actually going to air a, its first ever live programming uh, this weekend. Uh, it's the oh, what good timing. Rock. Yeah, it's a Chris Rock uh, comedy special. Great timing as well because people are very curious what he's going to say about uh, the Oscar debacle last year. And the Oscars are coming up as well. Um, And it's a big experiment for them to see can they do it. You know, the things that used to set them apart from a Disney or an NBC are suddenly, you know, not, not as pronounced as they used to be. Inside the Hive, we'll be back in just a moment to talk about how streaming is changing the talent landscape in Hollywood. All right, so Natalie, one of the other storylines we're following uh, here is this this possibly looming writer strike, which just to sum it up for our listeners really quick, uh, the Writers Guild of America, which is the union that represents the people who write the scripts for all your favorite shows and movies, their their, their contract deadline's coming up uh, May 1st. So that's raising the specter that maybe a new contract might not be reached by then. And it's not quite like hysteria yet, but it's definitely 
this storyline that seems to be heating up. You know, so, so we've been talking about how this sort of like course correction with PTV is impacting the streamers and the media companies and consumers. But I think we should also talk about how it's impacting uh, you know, writers and producers, you know, the people that are actually you know, putting all this great TV we watch together. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because you'd think that, uh, you know, the golden age of of streaming television would also uh, create a lot of, you know, wealth and opportunity for people in this town. And and it certainly has for, you know, big name producers like Shonda Rhimes and Ryan Murphy. Uh, but streaming has also really fundamentally changed how uh, people in this town who work on television get paid. And, and I think that that's really important as we start to talk about what's happening uh, with the writer's strike. So, you know, first and foremost, Foremost, uh, the um, streaming uh, took away a really key part of of the business, uh, which was um, you know back end profits. Which was basically anytime you created a TV show, made a TV show, it would you know sell internationally or would sell into syndication, and the the producers and and you know even sometimes the stars involved in the show would make money every time that happened, uh, but. Netflix has global rights to shows that they uh, stream for the most part. And uh, so instead of being able to, you know, pay that back end, now they, um, you know, essentially just uh, they buy it all up. They say, um, you know, we're just going to pay you one set price for this show and that's what you're going to make. And um, they uh, they usually tack on a little extra for people to make up for that. Uh, but uh, the way I've heard it best described is that, you know, you used to be able to hit home runs with a show like The Office or Friends that became a really big hit and would go on into syndication for years and years and make a ton of money. It's a lot harder to do that mm-hmm. now. And now you're more likely going to hit singles and doubles. Uh, so, you know, that's, you know, kind of, I think, key to a lot of this. And then, you know, there's also just a whole issue of, there's fewer episodes of television being made now. Uh, it used to be that you could have, you know, a 24 episode season of TV. I uh, would run all year, and now because of streaming, you don't need to do that. Uh, there's not the same like time slots to fill, so you're getting a lot more eight and ten episodes of uh, seasons of television. And if there's fewer episodes, there that's just less opportunity for people to get paid on uh, the the shows that they they write and produce. Um, you know, if you look at the wait time between seasons of Stranger Things or some of these shows, it, it can sometimes be more than a year between new seasons. So um, you know, if you're if you're someone who's working on one of these shows. Uh, you're tied up working on, and this is more for like, um, if you're like a producer or a showrunner, um, you know, you're tied up on the show for a really long time, but you're not necessarily getting a ton more money on it because it's only eight episodes instead of 24 episodes. Um, and so it's also making it hard for people to go out and find other jobs in between, you know, you can't necessarily go, uh, you know, get another gig for six months because you're really devoting all your time and effort to this one TV show like all year. And so it's created this dynamic where it's just, it's really hard to get paid as a writer right now. It's hard to make being a TV writer in Hollywood a like solid middle-class job. So is that, is that what's sort of coming to a head with this current contract that's going to expire soon? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so, you know, I'll say like Shonda Rhimes, Ryan Murphy, these kinds of, of writers, showrunners, Uber producers, they're all doing great work. So right. we're not really talking about We're not shedding people. any tears for, for them. No, no, not yet. Uh, we're really focused on the people who are, you know, starting out in their careers or, you know, kind of, you know, kind of just in, in the, the middle of their careers. Um, and 
they're they're really facing this kind of existential crisis, which is that if uh, if this streaming pullback happens that we're expecting will happen this year, they may all find it a lot harder to get jobs. And and those jobs, when they do find them, are going to pay them less than they ever used to. And so suddenly it's a lot harder to afford an apartment in L.A. And what, it's a lot harder, harder to support your family. Right. So what is what is that issue? If you, what what is the what is like the main sticking point that 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 WGA is is going to be negotiating for with this with this contract now? Essentially, um, one of the key things is is residuals. So. Basically, you know, another way that you get paid as a writer is that once you've written an episode of television, anytime that episode of television re-airs at any point, you get paid for that. So you could write one episode of The Simpsons and basically get a check every year until you die. You're set for life. (laughs) Yeah. You're set for life. Um, so writers are definitely looking for um, some ways to boost streaming residuals to make it, you know, uh, more worth their while when a show uh, goes into streaming. And that's hard because we don't have a lot of metrics for streaming. Uh, so we don't know how many people are watching these shows once they hit Netflix or Peacock or HBO Max. So well, also um, things can get yanked at like any minute, right? You can just get yanked off Netflix yeah. there one day gone the next. Yeah, and that's happened for people though. You know, the folks who've who've talked publicly about that happening have said that you know any any losses that they've incurred because things have gotten yanked have been pretty small because the streaming residuals are just really small. So mm-hmm. they just want they want to make more money from the fact that these streamers are profiting from their shows right. being there, from the back catalogs being there. Um, so that's a big one. Um, another big one is this. Um, kind of wonky thing called span protection, which kind of helps, um, you know, bridge the gap and basically make sure that they're getting paid, you know, for the number of weeks and months that they're putting into that work, Mm -hmm. even if the episode order is smaller. Um, That's a big one. Uh, And then the last one is this thing called mini rooms, basically hiring a smaller group of writers to get together and to, you know, tell them break all the story. And then once they see, you know, here's the full plan for this, you know, first season of show of a show, then they'll decide whether they're going to order it. So there's a few things that people find frustrating by this. First, it's a smaller number of writers in the room typically, so um, there's just fewer opportunities for people to get in to get those jobs. Um, and then also, um, those rooms are usually only convened for a really short period of time, and then they break once the show is actually put into production. So you're not getting as much money because you're not working as many weeks. Um, so they're annoyed by that. Um, and then lastly, uh, because these writers' rooms are, are, you know, basically being disbanded before uh, the show goes into production, the writers aren't um, still working on the show when it's actually being made. And, and if you don't have the opportunity to be on set and to learn about that, you'll never make that jump to that next level. Yeah. So if this all, if this does come to a head, I mean, the last time there was a strike in Hollywood, I, th- that was this was 2007, which was a huge story. And it's also worth noting, this would really put like Nikki Fink on the map with, with, with her coverage. And if it, you know, if a strike happens this May, which I don't know what the odds are. I, again, you're the, you're the, you're the expert here, but you know, how would it be similar and different to what we saw like 15, 16 years ago with that last strike? Yeah. Well, I mean, if you want to talk about odds for a second, I yes, think let's um, uh, there's, I think there's a pretty good chance we're going to get a strike. Uh, you know, going back to the, it's kind of this existential crisis for people, you know, like it's, it's not like, oh, I strike or I go back to my really great paying, you know, 
broadcast network TV writer job. It's like, oh, I strike or I might not get another job for another year. So at that point, it's like, well, why not just strike, you know? Um, So there's a pretty good chance uh, that there will be a strike. And um, I don't think anyone wants a strike. I think that, you know, the the studios, the networks, the writers, they'll all do what they can to avoid it. But I think there's a good chance. Um, So if it happens... You know, it it will mean complete shutdown of the scripted TV industry. Uh, any show that does not have all of its scripts uh, fully done um, and ready to go into production will have to, you know, pause. Um, and and so that doesn't just impact writers; that impacts producers, it impacts directors, it impacts. TV editors and VFX workers. I mean, it it will cause a lot of people to be out of jobs and, you know, for kind of as long as it takes for uh, a new agreement to be met. Uh, So it it could have a pretty major impact on this town. Um, And uh, so basically they're going to have to get like AI chatbots to come and write all the <laughs> all the shows, all the strikes happening is what is what you're really saying here. I mean, it, it's convenient that AI is having a moment, right? I think that there's a very good chance that could happen. You know, um, we we well, we joke, but is that actually like a thing? Is that actually a thing? Like, is that? I mean, because I've been following this sort of from like the media side, where you know, like there's these stories recently about like these literary magazines or, or like sci-fi magazines that are like flooded with submissions that are that are chat gpt submissions are we seeing any of that in 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 hollywood right now you know we we have yet to see a tv show that's been made using ai so i think we're a little ways out um people who don't think that this could happen say that you know ai can't really tell a joke can't really tell what's funny or you know kind of understand the nuances of things but you know i think that someone will try to do it at some point and um a great example of that is um, the fact that uh, there has been an AI-generated Seinfeld spoof running on Twitch uh, called Nothing Forever. Uh, you know, Seinfeld was famously the show about nothing. Um, and so it was it was kind of a spoof done all through, through AI generation. I don't know why they call it a food bank. It's no more a bank than my kitchen is. I was at the bank the other day, and all they gave me was a lollipop. What kind of bank is that? something like this is not ready for prime time and uh, that, you know, there would still need to be work to be done in order for something like that to actually be writing scripts. Um, you know, but I, I think some people uh, do do see the technology as, as potentially coming in and maybe helping to, you know, kind of craft um, some of, of a script or some of a plot, you know, and, and maybe, maybe a whole writer's room would never be disbanded in favor of AI, but perhaps you know, you could fire hire a few less people in a writer's room. Um, yeah. And that still, you know, takes jobs away from from real people. Well, that's a really depressing um, uh, way to end this. But, you know, I hope I, ho- I hope the writers are all okay. I hope they don't get replaced by robots. Um, and Natalie, thank you for, for, you know, I hope this was a very kind of like wonky conversation. But, you know, I feel like I understand all this stuff a lot, a lot better listening to you. So I, I appreciate you, uh, your expertise here and, and breaking this down. Cool. Thank you, guys. Appreciate it. This episode of Inside the Hive was produced by Will Coley. Stephen Valentino was our executive producer. We had engineering assistance from Gabe Quiroga and Jennifer Nelson. For more news from Inside the Hive, be sure to sign up for our newsletter at vanityfair.com forward slash newsletter forward slash hive. And let us know what you thought of this episode or if you have any comments or questions, tweet us. I'm at Joe Pompeo. And I'm at Nat Jarf. 
And join us again next week for another episode of Inside the Hive, where Wall Street, Washington, and Silicon Valley meet.